This is episode 169 of the Stem Cell Podcast, The Mammalian Nervous System, with Dr. Frida Miller. Hey, everybody, this is Daylon and Arun. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge in stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. Speaking of that, who do you want to hear on the podcast? If you know a researcher that would make a great guest, then we want to hear your suggestions. Send them to us by email at info at stemcellpodcast.com or on Twitter at stemcellpodcast. Today, we have Dr. Frida Miller from the Hospital for Sick Children Research Institute and the University of Toronto on the podcast to talk about her research into how stem cells build maintain and regenerate the mammalian nervous system and specifically the digits. It's pretty cool stuff. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news coming up. But first, neuroscientists looking for more predictive power in their disease models are increasingly adopting human pluripotent stem cells in their research. And our guest today is an example of that. Stem cell technologies offers products, protocols, and training to support HPSC-derived neural models. Explore their collection of technical videos and webinars on neurological disease modeling by visiting www.stemcell.com slash neural disease model. So let's get into it. The first, I guess, set of papers that I'm going to talk about today um, aren't directly stem cell related, but it's a pretty big piece of scientific news that's dropped this week. This is coming out of the NOMAD or Genome AD Consortium. I never really know how to pronounce it. Some people say NOMAD, some people say Genome AD. I'm going to call it NOMAD because that sounds cool. All right, so you probably have heard of NOMAD. It's the Genome Aggregation Database Consortium. It's had a predecessor, the Exome Aggregation Consortium, or EXAC. So they've. Uh, this is a genome sequencing consortium, all right? And the gist of this is that there are over 125,000 exomes and 15,000 whole genomes that have been sequenced as part of the NOMAD consortium. And the first major set of publications has come out this week. And these publications are in a variety of high-profile journals like Nature, uh, Nature Medicine, Nature Communications, and so on. I'm not going to talk about every single one of the papers, but I just kind of wanted to to drop a note in saying that these papers are out there. And of course, the data from the NOMAD consortium has already been available. It's one of the, the pillars of the consortium is to make sure that the data is publicly available to the scientific community as quickly as possible. And in fact, when I was a postdoc in Boston, this is actually some data that I used for some of my, my own work using uh, iPSCs to model congenital heart disease. So what is the NOMAD consortium? What's it about, right? So together, these studies, the, the studies that have kind of been published this week, they present a complete, a more complete catalog and understanding of classes of genetic variation called loss of function variants, which are, you know, where you lose the function of a particular gene through a particular genetic variant. Um, they also introduced the largest comprehensive reference map of an understudied yet really important class of genetic variation called structural variants, which are these larger portions of deletions in the genome. The, the data set also shows how different tools that account for unique forms of variation in the variant's biological context can help 
clinical geneticists when they're actually trying to diagnose patients with rare genetic diseases. So that's obviously really important. And finally, they uh, illustrate how population scale data sets can help evaluate drug targets. That's actually a, another subset. Uh, one of the papers, a couple of the papers actually focused on, on that exact topic. So where is this coming from? This is really an international effort, but it's really being spearheaded by some folks at the Broad Institute and also MIT, who were co-first or co-senior authors on a lot of the studies, most of the studies. And there's also scientists from Imperial College London in the UK, uh, even folks from 23andMe and other institutions around the world that are contributing to these individual papers. So they're saying more than 100 scientists and groups are actually contributed data and or an analytical effort to the consortium. This is the first big wave of discovery to come out of NOMAD. Uh, Daniel MacArthur is actually the scientific lead of the NOMAD project, and he's a senior author on like six of the studies, and now I believe he's in Australia. So... Back when they did EXAC, all right, EXAC is the predecessor to NOMAD. EXAC is looking at basically exomes, just sequence genomes focusing on the coding portions of, of, the, of the genome, right? And EXAC itself was built on the Thousand Genomes Project, the first large-scale international effort to actually catalog human genetic variation. This is incremental, right? The whole goal is you're going to sequence more and more and more genomes until, who knows, maybe you're going to sequence everybody in the entire world. Two of the seven papers are showing how these big genomic data sets can uh, reveal more about rare or understudied types of genetic variants like loss of function variants that I talked about. There's this flagship study, which was published in Nature, it was led by MacArthur, like I like I mentioned, who is a senior author, and also uh, somebody, uh, one of the scientists, Karzuski, who is a another scientist over there at the Broad Institute. They're actually able to identify the numbers on this are astounding, really. They're able to identify over four hundred thousand different loss of function variants in the NOMAD dataset. And again, this is only from around 120,000 different uh, genomes, right? So there's so many more loss of function variants that are actually out there. They also, as I mentioned, looked at structural variants, which previously have been pretty difficult to identify in the whole genomic data set, and they've not been surveyed at this scale ever. Um, so what did they, like, what are some of the results from their, their findings? They actually found that for example, at least 25% of all loss of function variants in the average individual genome are actually structural variants. So these large variants that are big portions of the genome that are chopped up. Um, and then a lot of people actually carry what should be deleterious versions of these structural alterations, but that the phenotypes or clinical outcomes don't always line up, right? There's also another Nature paper from Beryl Cummings, who is a, another grad student at the Broad Institute, that found tissue-based differences in how segments of a gene are expressed, and basically linking these tissue-based differences to biological function. There's a Nature Communications paper looking at multinucleotide variants, another Nature Communications paper looking at the five prime untranslated regions of genes. So a ton, a ton of data that's finally published here. Uh, one other thing, one last note that I'll mention here, there's a Nature Medicine study that looked at LARC2, um, which is LRRK2, a gene that is associated with the risk of Parkinson's disease. And they are actually able to use this NOMAD data to predict that drugs that reduce LARC2 protein levels or 
partially block the gene's activity are unlikely to have side effects. So this is that final bullet that I was talking about, about how this data can be used for drug development. It's, it's an astounding amount of genetic information that's been revealed through this NOMAD data set. We have an incredible amount of genetic variation from all of us in, this, in the entire human population. And something that we were actually talking about before the show, 125,000 genomes seems like a lot, but you know they're, they're gonna take this to the next level. A million, I'm sure, is the next thing. And then ultimately, as sequencing becomes cheaper and cheaper, you want to maybe get, have the opportunity to sequence a large, almost the entire human population. Maybe that's the, the goal. Of course, uh, if you look back and think about how expensive genome sequencing was like 20 years ago, the Human Genome Project was billions of dollars, right? And now we can do all this sequencing in part because the cost is under a grand. So the sky's the limit for something like this, I think. Yeah, we've come a long way, and this is a massive, massive effort, and uh, I think, as you said, reflects the the power both for basic discovery, but also clinically. I mean, the output there, the final coup de grace with the LARC, um, shows the, the the potency of this approach. And you also alluded to the how we're going to extend this. You know, we're near, nowhere near the end point here uh, in terms of how many genomes we're going to analyze along these lines. And I was just reading some little tidbit in the write-up, and uh, I don't want to misquote, so I'm not going to go too much into detail. But uh, one element there was that the the that the there's some limitations of the the data set, specifically in the whole genome. We're talking like near to 20,000 genomes, whole human genomes from human individuals, whole genomes, um, 20,000, uh, and that those are it's still limited in its predictive ability and in to maximize the the predictive potential of the data set. We would need to have a thousand x more. So. 10 to 20 million uh, genomes. So yeah, I, I think that while we revealed how, how amazing uh, and the potential uh, this is um, in this data aggregate, which came at us like a fire hose, uh, I think that uh, it's clear that in, in order to really maximize and realize the full potential, we've got a long way to go. But as you said, also that the technology is such that you know, I think we're really approaching that kind of Gattaca level where you can imagine not just every individual being sequenced, but sequenced multiple times mm -hmm. in their life and in multiple contexts. And think of all the information we get from that and all the other single cell seek tech that I'm sure we're gonna talk about seven or eight times the rest of the roundup, <laughs> like all that. But what do we do with the data, Arun? That's the million dollar question, right? What do we do with this data from this study and XAC and everything that's come before? What do we do with it? What does it mean? Okay, so I have like a, a single nucleotide polymorphism on chromosome 15 or whatever. What can I do with that data? And I think this is what brings it back to the stem cell biology because we need people who can actually model what some of these variants are actually doing and say in vitro models, okay? Say you find a genetic variation that you're interested in because it's close to your favorite gene of interest and it's also associated with the disease. What you could do from this information is take that variant and using say CRISPR and iPSCs, introduce it into an in vitro model and then figure out mechanistically how it's actually causing the disease. I think that's the next step to actually make this information truly meaningful, right? Yeah, well, now I know it's in your next grant. Ha ha, and everybody <laughs> else does too. Um, we talk about the tech. I got a little tech story here from Cell Stem Cell. 
Um, and yeah, like the, the, the technology is advancing in such a way across all fronts. And I think one of the really interesting things about how we approach any new technique is we're, we're kind of just, you know, kind of trying to get our arms around it. And when embryonic stem cells first came on the set, and especially human embryonic stem cells, I think every developmental biologist out there said, you know, their mouths were watering and they went after it. But they were drawing upon the inferences from their own understanding of developmental biology in order to control the differentiation of those cells. And this is a story that kind of asks the question of why are we going with these recipes that are enshrined in all these protocol, you know, Bibles? Is this the only way to do it? All right. So this is a story out of Richard Sherwood at the Brigham and Women's Hospital at Harvard Medical School. And like I said, this is based on this premise that the current methods for protocols for differentiating the cells are based on, you know, empirical evidence, pretty much, and intuition. Um, and indeed, the getting these real niche cell types is difficult because they're kind of far down the the tree. You know, if there was a nice image that the authors use in the paper, they say that if embryonic, if ESL differentiation is represented as a progressively branching lineage tree. The current approaches, they collect detailed data on specific paths because those are the target paths. And if it's any other path that they're not interested in, they just leave it unstudied. Okay. So it's kind of, you know, uh, enriching for these pathways that are the target and leaving all the others aside. And the basic premise going into this was that by doing a kind of systematic, unbiased catalog of gene expression effects along all those unstudied paths, you'd get a better understanding of the whole and find some alternative conditions and pathways to get these unique niche cells. And this is where the technical element came in. What they used was this barcodelet technology. Okay, and of course, single cell sequencing. I, I warned you we were going to talk about it. They use this barcodelet adjuvant, though, we'll call it. And they're calling it BarNA-seq. All right, contracted the R's there. BarRNA-seq. I like BarNA-seq. All right, we're making up names here with you with the nomad, me with the BarNA-seq. We're going with it. The idea is these barcodelets, they're little pieces of RNA. Uh, that you pretty much transfect into the cells while they're under the treatment condition, okay? So if you have them in a GSK3 beta inhibitor, you uh, can join that uh, treatment with a specific barcodelet. And by combining these in, in a, you know, numbers three to seven combinations, you can get all these different permutations and therefore link the treatment on the back end when you purify it, when you, you know, break up the cells enzymatically, you can... Uh, identify which cells, uh, by virtue of which had which RNAs encoding which barcodelets, you can identify what sequence of growth factors they saw. Um, they did this in a mouse ES differentiation system, but they were uh, driving toward germ layer and mesodermal fates. Uh, and they were simultaneously manipulating up to seven developmental pathways using, you know, these canonical either inhibitors or growth factors that are the major drivers of early uh, mouse, at least, but pretty generally early ESL differentiation. Um, and then uh, on the output, they developed this kind of data-driven and, you know, just taking unbiased from the data, they developed this framework for identifying uh, signaling perturbations that directed the cells towards specific fates um, and kind of corroborated that approach using an existing uh, single-cell RNA-seq atlas. Uh, but then they also 
uh, developed using this framework, they used, developed a, a novel approach for generating uh, ESL or driving ESL differentiation to notochord like cells and then validated that endpoint as like bona fide notochord. So I thought it was a really nice technical piece where it starts with the general upsetting of the dogma. You know me, I'm a real iconoclast. Why are we doing it this way? It comes up with a real unbiased approach towards uh, uh, to, to developing a, a, a new uh, paradigm. And then it applies it to, I think, great success. I think the twist here is that it pretty much verified what we inferred all those uh, many years ago, all the developmental biologists, the, the brilliant minds that kind of wrote the book on ESL differentiation. They weren't far off. They weren't off at all. So it shows us that our intuition is right. But I think that we can apply this approach in specific, in other contexts that are more niche. You know, this is very generic, early germ cell differentiation, mesoderm. If you go deep down the, the branching tree there, I think you could apply this in a context where it could really give you insight in a system that really hasn't been looked at so deeply by thousands of developmental biologists as have looked at early ESL differentiation. Yeah, it's a really cool technology and it's teaching us more about how different developmental pathways are interacting during development to influence differentiation and fate specification. So it's an important tool to help fine tune differentiation, maybe make it better. And it's something you alluded to earlier on during your comment, right? Um, differentiation as we have known it has been pretty arbitrary, right? You throw on a growth factor and you expect the various cells in that population to hopefully behave the same way to ultimately produce a population of cells that you're interested in, right? So, you know, therefore, because of that inherent variability, differentiation can be a pain in the butt sometimes. This is true. As somebody who does a lot of cardiomyocyte differentiation, the dream is to have 100% of whatever cell type you're interested in, right? But inevitably that's that's never the case because individual cells can behave differently when subjected to a gross large stimulus like this. So I think it's it's a really important paper because ultimately, you know, it's gonna help us help drive us towards that ultimate goal of perfect differentiation, 100%. Maybe I'm naive, maybe maybe we'll never get there, right? But that's that's the hope for all, I think, in vitro stem cell biologists is that our differentiations get better and better. No, I think that is the end point. And I think it's, it's a beautiful end point too, because we're not talking about perfect and, well, we're talking about perfect with perfect being the, the measure that, that uh, biology has put out there, the standard being true human bona fide development. And in their defense, in all of our defense, you know, it was such an amazing thing. Me being on the ground at the early, you know, lucky enough to be there in the early days, you put a bunch of stuff on a dish. It was one type of cell. You came back in two weeks and it was contracting and you're like, holy S, you know what I mean? Yep. I have one mm -hmm. contracting focus there was overwhelming in itself. You weren't worried about 100%, but now... You know, we're we we're we're still mesmerized by that contracting focus, uh, but now we're looking for foci. We're looking for a hundred percent. We're looking for higher order structures. And you know, how can you blame us? We're looking for the next thing. And I think that's what makes science such a beautiful endeavor. Yeah, and don't get me wrong. I'm not a a true ultimate like differentiation hater, right? I still do it every single day. And like you said, the fact that we can actually reproduce some of these biological principles to get the cell types that we want in a dish and the fact that we can mimic 
billions of years of evolution to actually make this happen. I think that's that's absolutely beautiful. And speaking of cardiomyocytes, my favorite cell type, there's actually a paper that came out recently in Cell Stem Cell that's hoping to take cardiomyocyte differentiation and uh, disease modeling to the next level. This is a paper titled Human iPSC-Derived Cardiac Stromal Cells Enhance Maturation in 3D Cardiac Microtissues and reveal non-cardiomyocyte contributions to heart disease. The first author is Elisa Giacomelli, and she was previously in Christine Mummery's lab, who is an icon when it comes to cardiac differentiation and cardiac development. I think she was actually a guest of ours back on the show uh, in sometime in the dark ages, before my time. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Christine Mummery is obviously an incredibly respected basic cardiac stem cell biologist. So let's dive right into it. We talk about maturation, maturation of iPSCs and iPSC cardiomyocytes almost every show um, on the podcast and ways that we might be able to make it better. Um, previous studies have used biomechanical stimulation to improve cardiac action potential and contractility of individual iPS cardiomyocytes. There's a, a huge set of papers um, coming from Columbia a couple years ago from Casey Ronaldson Bouchard, who's actually one of the, the guests on our podcast not too long ago, right? She had a really big nature paper focusing on that. And while that's really promising and it's successful when it comes to maturing iPS cardiomyocytes, there's something to be said about a simplified way to induce maturation. And that's kind of what they're going for here. They're using, com they're combining different cardiac cell types, not just cardiomyocytes, but endothelial cells, cardiac fibroblasts in the right ratio. This is a like a 70%, 15%, 15% ratio to create these cardiac microtissues, 3D cardiac microtissues that are only 5,000 cells big. And the cool thing about this is that you don't really have to do any sort of scaffold-based tissue engineering or have any complicated uh, like technologies or artificial constructs to actually induce the cardiomyocyte maturation. It's simply a matter of having these contacts and uh, signaling from adjacent cells like the endothelial cells and the cardiac fibroblasts that can actually induce the maturation of the myocytes. So let's walk through the paper. First figure was actually looking at the differentiation of iPSC-derived cardiac fibroblasts. As you know, this is a, a population of cells that's not super well-defined, and they're basically using a differentiation protocol that they've developed to induce cardiac fibroblast differentiation through epicardial differentiation. So that's the first thing that they did. The next thing that they did is actually figure out the right combination of cardiac fibroblasts, of endothelial cells and cardiomyocytes that would work the best to actually induce structural maturation in the cardiomyocytes in these little microtissues. And they evaluated that through sarcomere length. So sarcomeres are, of course, the individual units of the contracting muscle cells. And they saw that in these cardiac microtissues with the right ratio of endothelial cells and fibroblasts, they're able to induce sarcomere maturation um, in, in the cardiomyocytes. Of course, structural maturation is one thing, and electrophysiological maturation is another. And they're, again, they're, uh, their cardiac microtissues with the endothelial cells and the fibroblasts were actually electrophysiologically mature too. They had this iconic notch in their action potentials when they, they checked them in uh, patch clamp. So that's cool to see. 
They, of course, got to throw in some single cell in there as well. So they did some single cell analysis to just see how mature these cells are along the spectrum of differentiation. And then the uh, they also looked at metabolic maturation, another important thing in cardiomyocyte maturation. But I think the, the really neat one of the really neat things about this paper was their disease model. So they actually introduced, I thought, a really unique disease model into this paper, whereby they're looking at arrhythmogenic cardiomy cardiomyopathy or you know cardiac contractility or um, arrhythmias, you know, heart rhythm problems in, in the heart, right? So they looked at a model of arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy that's not inherent to the cardiomyocytes, but it's thought that the fibroblasts are actually inducing the the electrophysiological abnormalities. So what they basically did was have a, a microtissue with wild-type ECs, wild-type cardiomyocytes, and cardiac fibroblasts from a patient who actually has a, a mutation causing arrhythmogenic cardiomyopathy. And what they were able to show is that when you actually introduce those um, patient disease-specific fibroblasts into an otherwise wild-type system, the fibroblasts can actually induce arrhythmia in the cardiomyocytes. So it's it's having sort of a paracrine effect on cardiac function and on cardiomyocyte function, and is showing that arrhythmia itself isn't always inherent to the individual contracting cardiomyocyte. A really, really neat disease model, and I haven't seen a lot of that in the past. So, um, so it's a really, I, th I think it's a neat technical advance because for one, this is easy to do. You don't have to have any sort of um, advanced pacing apparatus or scaffolding structure or any really tissue engineering applications at all to induce the cardiomyocyte maturation here. It's just a matter of making the adjacent cell types, the ECs and cardiac fibroblasts in the and combining them with the cardiomyocytes in the right ratio. And that in itself is going to make mature myocytes. And of course, the other thing is this is very scalable. Each of these microtissues is only 5,000 cells big. And so this makes it really amenable to high throughput screening too. So I, this is something that I can do this week if I wanted to. And who knows, maybe I'll just do that. <laughs> we know you will, Arun. Get after it. This is a... Uh, uh, it's so cool. I mean, you so you started talking about our previous guest, uh, Casey, there was with the, her pivotal study. And I think it's kind of progression. Uh, and it's ironic because we were just talking about 100% differentiation. But in, in actuality, you don't want 100% cardiomyocytes because you need the accessory cell types. But there was that progression understanding. I remember early days, the idea that you could get them to contract and contraction would be would you know result in that maturation and then of course the obvious idea maybe not so obvious um years ago but now i think everyone's coming around to the idea of these accessory cells and in the heart it's particularly evident i think from the developmental biology right arun because we all know mm -hmm. that cardiac fibroblasts and the infiltration of the cardiac jelly and in development of that cell population is really integral to the development of a healthy heart so we know we need these cells and we know that we need their signals much less the endothelium and other associated cells. But really, the question I have after this is because, you know, this patient element here was so over the top. And I feel like it was a cell stem cell paper already. And then they took it to that level, which is typical of Christy Mummer, you know, top of her game. But um, the question I have here is that, do you know if like the, the, that the maturation is necessary? Like if they hadn't undergone that whole maturation element, that uh, immature, quote unquote, fibroblasts wouldn't 
have conferred the same effect, you know, in 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 the paracrine effect if they were hadn't been matured. You know what I mean? Or yeah, is it no, just like window dressing? Was it just like, oh yeah, and by the way, then we used them to do this Rambo study on patients that's, you know, pretty intense, which could probably stand alone as a as a nature medicine paper. Yeah, yeah. No, I, th I think that's a really good question. And maybe it's buried somewhere in the supplement, right? I think uh, the question that you're getting to is like, what if you just had those patient-specific disease fibroblasts next to uh, a standard old cardiomyocyte prep in a two-dimensional culture? Would you still see the same arrhythmogenicity and, you know, arrhythmia, arrhythmias induced in the cardiomyocytes? I don't know. Uh, that's a, it's a valid question, but, um, I think, yeah, this is a really cool study because we can talk about cardiomyocyte maturation forever, but to make it easy, to make it really easy and approachable and accessible, I think is, is really awesome. Yes. Uh, it's the best science. It's always easy. It's the first thing you get suspicious is when someone pulls out their, their model at the end and there's lines cross crisscrossing everywhere, you know, biology at the end of the day, while it can be tremendously complex is usually pretty simple, but you know, it's hard to recapitulate that biological milieu, right? And that's evident in in early days when you start trying to work with these uh, embryonic stem cells coming from a, a developmental model like mouse, when you're looking at embryogenesis or frog even, and any of these models, you see how, how magical it is. But then you get the cells in a dish and you start, um, you know, banging your head against the wall. Uh, but this story that you talked about there was moving toward more elegant differentiation. I have another story and a nod to Neural uh, uh, in honor of our guest, Dr. Miller, uh, where they're modeling neural tube development very early on. This is a nature bi biotechnology story from Agnet Kirkaby Lab uh, there in University in Copenhagen, Denmark. Um, so just a little background, you know, for those of us who aren't totally you know, in love with neural, like myself, neural tube development, regionalization, morphogenesis, it's governed by these gradients, right? And neural, it's one of the first thing that comes out of there. So it's kind of the master element, um, a, a good thing to study. But there's these two axes, there's a rostrocaudal, and then there's a dorsoventral axis, right? And the rostrocaudal axis is mediated by a wind signaling gradient, um, it's very highly conserved, but it, the mechanisms by which it mediates that uh, that regionalization is not exactly well understood. Um, but it forms the major neural regions of the forebrain, the midbrain, and the hindbrain, as well as the spinal cord, right? And then you get these secondary organizing centers at the boundaries of those primary regions, like the midbrain, hindbrain boundary. Um, and that's where you get the dorsoventral identity established in a perpendicular, perpendicular to that rostrocaudal axis, right? So there's been a lot of studies. Uh, we've talked about some of them in the show that have, have looked at self-organization of the uh, uh, dorsoventral axis and identity and sub-regionalizations there in like neural cysts or using microfluidic devices, or we talked about in uh, Lorenz uh, Studer had a story about a year ago, maybe now, where he used like a little bead of sonic, he sonic hedgehog in an embryoid body to kind of create this gradient. Um, but that's all dorsoventral. The rostrocaudal, the primary neural patterning access, so to speak, you could call it, uh, it's not been modeled in vitro to date. Okay, common uh, agnet and uh, uh, 
the scientists in their group, um, they had previously shown in the lab that if you expose human embryonic stem cells, like eight years ago, the cell report study, that if you expose human embryonic stem cells to increasing concentrations of GSK3 beta inhibitor, which activates Wnt, um, you can get uh, progressively caudalized fates uh, amongst the derivatives there. Um, and so what they tried here was they used um, a similar idea here uh, to recreate the entire rostrocaudal neural axis from forebrain all the way to hindbrain in one tissue uh, by using a linear gradient. So it's a kind of a mashup of the microfluidic and the beads of Lorenz and all that stuff to create essentially a linear gradient of the GSK3 beta inhibitor. A simple approach. I mean, a little, a little bit more engineering involved than you were talking about, Arun, with this, the 5,000 uh, cell size microspheres. But um, still pretty simple. You just have two lines that come together, 100% of GSK3 beta and 0%, and they come in and create a linear gradient. Um, straightforward, right? Uh, but it's a nature biotech story because the output was amazing. They got human embryonic stem cells cultured in this device. They called it, you know, they have to call it something. So they called it Microfluidic Controlled Stem Cell Regionalization, or MISTER. So this is a novel approach, the MISTER approach uh, in the Wnt uh, activation gradient. They could generate neural tissue that exhibited this progressive caudalization from forebrain to and midbrain and hindbrain. So the entire sweep. Um, and, and this is the kicker, they had this isthmic organizer uh, characteristics in there. And of course, they did some single cell seek uh, and showed that there were transcriptomic hallmarks of this rostrocaudal organization. Um, and uh, the expression patterns were like very similar to uh, early rostrocaudal neural plates that you see in mouse embryos. Now, of course, we couldn't look in human embryos, so the next thing you could look at is the mouse, but these human embryonic stem cell cultures in this MISTER apparatus looked very much like the mouse, the bona fides from the mouse. So this was, a, I think, we're, we're kind of in one vein here on the show today, which is how we're applying these tremendously elegant and kind of straightforward, simple, but technically advanced approaches in order to recapitulate the, the beauty and magic uh, uh, that's been fine-tuned by nature over eons. Tools for differentiation, that's kind of the, the focus of today's show. And as a tool who does differentiation, I really <laughs> appreciate the papers that we focused on here today. Uh, this is really cool. This is really cool nature biotech paper. I mean, it's in nature biotech for a reason. Uh, there are a billion different gradients that influence differentiation. Wnt, Sonic Hedgehog, TGF Beta. So the possibilities are really endless for applying this aptly named Mr. Technology to whatever developmental pathway or process that you're really interested in. So you can look at cardiac development. You can look at neural development like they did here. So it's, uh, you know, gradients are important for all sorts of differentiation processes. And it's going to be, I, I would assume that they're going to be looking at other uh, differentiation processes after this. I'm sure it's down. I'm sure it's in the works. For sure. And, uh, you know, you were saying it there. It's, it's the, the multiplicity there. Once they start combining one gradient with another and all these vectors God knows. I mean, I doubt we can approach the milieu that that creates life. But, uh, you know, we could come close to creating more complex organoids at the very least. 
And that brings me to my message from Stem Cell Technologies, who invites you to find a pathway into the peripheral nervous system with StemDiff Neural Crest Differentiation Kit. Whether you need Schwann cells, sensory neurons, or sympathetic neurons, StemDiff Neural Crest Differentiation Kit enables high purity generation of neural crest precursors from human pluripotent stem cells. You can learn more about this at www.stemcell.com slash NCKIT. That's N-C-K-I-T. You could get the tools you need to do differentiation, you know, be done with us tools on this show. But enough of that. Dr. Frieda Miller is going to tell us a little bit about her work. All right, guys, this episode, we have the pleasure of welcoming to the show, Dr. Frieda Miller. She is senior scientist at the Hospital for Sick Children Research Institute, also professor at the University of Toronto. The Miller-Kaplan Lab focuses on the cellular mechanisms that regulate development of the mammalian nervous system with a particular interest in stem cells and trophic factors, and we're going to get into all that and more in this interview. Dr. Miller, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. I'm delighted to be here. Well, we are delighted to have you. I just want to start by, you know, circling back to a joke I often make on the show in poor taste. I say that it you know, because I'm jealous that the NIH funds 80% of the funding for the NIH is devoted to neuroscience. That's just, you know, my jealousy. Uh, but for this episode, I actually did my homework and calculated in a rudimentary way what the actual percentage of NIH funding that goes to neuroscience. And it's more like 20%. But that's a big number, you know, given all the organs and all the, you know, maladies and pathologies that are out there. But not only is it a, a significant percentage, but it's escalating. And that probably has something to do with the general aging population in the first world. I know you're more focused on digit regeneration. We're going to come back around to that. But just by way of introduction, can you give us a picture of the kind of neuropathology, neurodegenerative, the unmet need, uh, the landscape in Canada? I just talk, joke about the NH, but can you tell us about what it looks like in Canada and perhaps also globally, if you can, uh, you know, sound off on that too. Sure, sure. I think the situation with regards to neurodegenerative disorders and brain disorders in general is pretty similar, at least in um, Europe and North America. And basically, uh, what we're facing as our population ages is an escalation in the percentage of people with really debilitating neurodegenerative disorders. Moreover, at the other end of life, we're seeing a lot of, um, for unknown reasons, by the way, we're seeing a lot of children being diagnosed with another type of brain disorder, which frequently can be called autism spectrum disorders or different types of behavioral disorders, even things like ADHD. So I think what that means is, first of all, that the societal burden is increasing and hence the interest in funding research into these disorders. But I think the other thing that makes it very different than from, for example, heart disease or cancer in particular, is that these are lifelong burdens frequently. These aren't things that, you know, just last for sadly, say in cancer, two or three years. Um, this is something that if someone has autism spectrum disorder, that's for their entire life. If they have a spinal cord injury, that frequently happens to young adults for the rest of their life. And even neurodegeneration now is lasting, you know, from the time someone say in their late 60s or 70, 15 years someone can linger. 
So I think it's this kind of sort of um, long trajectory mm. that is making neuroscience such an important area of research for all of us. And I don't, I'm not going to pretend I can quote the numbers of how many people actually have these disorders. Um, I used to know that. <laughs> um, but I can tell you that there's a high enough number that you can predict that just about anybody that you meet is impacted either directly or a family member by some kind of a brain disorder. Hmm. And I think that touches all of our hearts and make all of us really want to try and understand first, how does that happen? And second, how can we make it better? Hmm. Certainly there's a a need for cutting edge research in neuroscience and both Dalon and I are, we're not directly involved in neuroscience. We're more on the cardiovascular research side of things, but even from afar, I've noticed that there's been a huge shift in neuroscience over the last couple of decades. Like previously it was thought that the human brain had really limited regenerative capacity and that you're stuck with the neurons that you're born with. But lately that dogma has really changed. And now it's believed that there's indeed neuronal turnover through the actions of adult neural stem cells, for example. And of course, your lab has done a lot of critical work on this. So now that we know that the adult human brain has neuronal turnover through these stem cells, broadly speaking, how can we best harness this capacity to address some of these disease-related neurodegenerative disorders that you were talking about? As you probably know, you're hitting a topic that is close to my own heart, my scientific mm -hmm. heart, as well as my personal heart. Mm -hmm. um, I think that... Uh, as you said, 30 years ago, we didn't really understand that the brain was like other tissues and had a fundamental ability to regenerate or repair or even plasticity. Um, that was due to the fact that the brain was almost impossible to study 30 or 40 years ago. We didn't have the tools. We didn't have the techniques um, that we have now that now allow us to study the brain much in the same way that you can study the heart. So one of the big fundamental breakthroughs as people were able to become more sophisticated is the discovery, as you said, that actually our brains contain populations of stem cells that function for a large part of our lives and not only make the nerve cells that allow us to have the circuitry that allows us to do this interview, for example, but also some of the other types of cells in the brain that are damaged in things like multiple cirrhosis, the glial cells. So that fundamental concept that our brains actually contain stem cells that might help not only with day-to-day -day changes, but that may actually be used potentially to repair the brain was really a major breakthrough. So the question then becomes, how could we use um, those stem cells to help treat these awful disorders I've been talking about? And one way, and I think it was the way most people thought of this in the beginning was really like you would for other tissues, perhaps transplantation-based approaches. And a lot of us, including myself, you know, became very interested in the idea that we could find stem cells that we could transplant into the brain to help, for example, to treat multiple sclerosis or Parkinson's disease or whatever your pet neurodegenerative disorder was. Um, that is still a very interesting and topical area that, that some really fantastic scientists are working in. Um, but my lab took a step back, realizing how difficult it was going to be to actually transplant cells into a human brain without doing a lot of damage, um, and said, well, if we do have these stem cells in our brains, and, and 
perhaps I even have a few at least still, (laughs) then can we harness those stem cells to help to repair things that we normally think of as being not as being irreparable, basically. So if you think about that idea, it's a very uh, simplistic one on the surface. Okay, stem cells are in your brain. Just get them to do what you need them to do to repair a brain injury or degeneration. Um, But when we started to look at it in that simplistic way, we realized we knew virtually nothing about what normally made those stem cells do what they do on a day-to-day basis. So While conceptually, this is not a difficult uh, uh, thing to think about, when you actually get down to the nuts and bolts of how would you actually do it, you realize that we need to have much more understanding of what those stem cells are and what makes them tick normally before we can even dream about recruiting them to help them to repair things. And so that used to be something that I thought was, I'm going to shoot for that, but it's It may never come to fruition, but I think one of the most exciting things from my perspective is in the past five years or so, we're starting to find evidence that perhaps that strategy is a realistic one, that we now understand enough about these brain stem cells that we can start to imagine recruiting them. And there's even clinical trials, some of which I'm involved with myself, that are asking that question right now. So I'm super excited about this idea that we can harness endogenous brain stem cells to promote um, functionality in situations where you need increased functionality and or to even help repair the brain. And I think that that's no longer a pipe dream, but something that may come to fruition. Wow. Yeah. I'm glad uh, that you answered that so fully because I think you hit all the points, which is that the expectations were high and we maybe had an oversimplified view based on hematopoietic stem cell transplantation or something. And then we recognize the challenge of it. And I'm really heartened to see that now you, who've been through the entire arc and realizes the challenge, that you think we've turned a corner and now that we're we're maybe a, a step closer to the regenerative applications, because that's what we all have our eye on. But I mean, sort of in the same theme of what you're you're talking about, I think all of us, the, the regenerative, also just the basic amongst us, you know, who work with stem cells, we we are all maybe, most of us, I would say, at least are fundamentally developmental biologists. And, and all of us have had that experience when you realize and, and witness firsthand the magic of embryogenesis, whatever the system is, a cell to an organ, to a system, to a, to, to a living thing, it's amazing. And it's something that you know happens because you can see it. Um, and you know, part of the thing that is always so uh, impressive to me and frustrating, I'm sure, uh, to others and myself, is the the elusiveness of neural. You know, you can't you can't really see the apparatus. You can't necessarily see the the moving parts or recognize them for what they are. And it reminds me of this, you know, the, the maxim or the law of of Arthur Clarke famously said that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. I feel that way about the brain. When you think about relative to the other organs, like you can understand the mechanics of the heart maybe, and even the systems at the cell level of the lung and the alveoli and the liver and all that stuff. With the brain, it's like more abstract, right? It's more meta. And we're throwing all this tech at it with the single cell, stuff that's beyond, literally beyond the imagination of scientists even a couple decades ago. Um, and as you're saying, we're kind of closing in on understanding how to apply it maybe, but are we ever going to really demystify 
that the magic of the brain and higher order thought? And if so, like, what are the technologies you think that are going to get us there? Yeah, that's an excellent question. You know, I, um, uh, many years ago now, worked at the Montreal Neurological Institute at McGill University. And um, uh, that was an institute that was founded by Wilder Penfield, the neurosurgeon who, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen the picture of the homunculus mm-hmm. that on the brain. And mm. it was Wilder Penfield who discovered that by, he was doing neurosurgery and people were awake, it was perhaps epilepsy or things like that. And he was able to define what parts of the brain were important for those different parts of your outside body, if you will. So there's a quote, and I may not get it quite right, by Wilder Penfield that is in the lobby as you enter the Montreal Neurological Institute. And basically what, what it says is that the study of the brain is the study of man himself. Mm. And that's exactly what your question is getting at. The very thing that makes it so difficult to study the brain is the thing that makes us want to understand it the most, Mm. right? It's, as you said, almost a magical black box where we input things and somehow they're processed and then amazing creative ideas come out or amazing motor activity and great athletes or whatever Mm. your readout is. So, so how are we ever going to understand that? Well, just to briefly come back to the regenerative medicine side of things, I think that that elusiveness is one of the reasons why people in the stem cell field have decided more to go after demyelinating disorders where you lose glial cells. Because myelin, which basically allows the connections in our brains to function properly, is something that is kind of a bit more yes and no. You know what I mean? It's like when you lose it, that's bad. You can't do things as well. And you can gain it in kind of an unsophisticated way and probably improve function. That's much easier than, as you said, trying to fix neural connections, Mm -hmm. the actual relationships between neurons that we don't even understand now. So I think some of the greatest progress is being made in these these more simplistic, if you will, um, approaches to fixing the brain. How will we answer the big question, though, which is what most of us um, are really in our hearts interested in, which is almost the the junction of philosophy and science, right? Mm. The nature of consciousness, the nature of what makes one person different than another, the nature of creativity. I think that some of my biggest hopes for that really, at least maybe not creativity and consciousness, but at least, you know, where certain aspects of hardwired personality are, for example, really is going to be at the interface between people who are doing all these amazing imaging modalities on humans now. And that is just going forward by leaps and bounds. The people who are trying to use that information to model things and to analyze these big data sets to come up with interesting new things. And people at the complete opposite end of the spectrum, which you've already alluded to, which are the developmental biologists who are kind of taking a more reductionist perspective and trying to ask, okay, we can't understand the thing once it's built, but if we can watch it being put together at the same time we can watch the network properties emerging, then perhaps we can understand what it took to make those emergent network properties. So I think that the true um, breakthroughs in the big questions in neuroscience are going to take that kind of um, 
crosstalk amongst disciplines, to be frank, that never talk to each other or very rarely <laughs> talk to each other to really push those questions forward. So I'm sure Dalon would agree, but I'm pretty jealous of the neuroscientists because it seems like they get to play with the cool new technologies before everybody else gets to, right? Like optogenetics is one example that that came out and revolutionized neuroscience and then the rest of us picked it picked it up as well so uh definitely a great time to be in neuroscience and while you've certainly focused a lot of your research efforts on the brain lately you've also shifted a little bit towards other aspects of the peripheral nervous system and also tissue regeneration so specifically there was a dev cell paper a developmental cell paper that your lab published not too long ago where you were examining the nature of the blastema cells that actually regenerate the adult mammalian fingertips in mouse models, right? And I've always lamented that adult mammals have such a limited regenerative capacity in comparison to other vertebrates like the zebrafish and so on. But it seems like you've all found that this ability is context and environment dependent. So talk a little bit about this work and what it might tell us about the not so hidden regenerative potential of adult mammals. Yeah. So, so you know, I, I as a little segue, I'm I have some newer graduate students right now, and we were taking advantage of this kind of time off to go through a lot of the old papers from the lab. And when I was, it reminded me that when I was a postdoc, one of my first papers was actually comparing development versus regeneration of neurons in the brain. Hmm. So this interest in how development informs tissue regeneration, even though I specifically looked at it from a very neural perspective before, has sort of been a lifelong theme. Now, at that time, I walked away from it after working on it for, you know, I don't know, seven years or something um, as part of my lab. And uh, the reason was I felt we had hit a wall. I thought, we're not going to get any farther on this. We, the techniques we have to interrogate these questions is too limited. But now to come back to the question I was just asked, I became convinced about 10 years ago that now between our new understanding of stem cells and the new technologies that we had accessible to us, that I could go back to something that was very dear to my heart, was this interface between development and regeneration. Now, as you've already um, uh, said, that one of the key issues Really, the big question is why can axolotls regenerate things like limbs and spinal cords, et cetera, zebrafish as well. I mean, there's a whole host of animals that can do it. And we as humans can do virtually nothing. And so there's been a lot of people who have really focused on trying to look at those model systems and come up with lessons that we can maybe apply to mammals or humans ultimately. We decided to take a little bit different approach. And we looked around and said, is there any place in a mammal and preferably something that generalizes to humans where you actually get what I would call true bona fide multi-tissue regeneration? And there are a few examples of that. One is the pinna of the ear. There are people that study that where you get cartilage and dermis and epidermis regeneration. But what we became attracted to was something uh, which that you just alluded to, which is digit tip regeneration. Now in adult mice, remarkably, if you'll take off the tip of their digits, but you leave the part of the digit that's essential for the nail to grow, the nail bed, if you leave that intact, 
they will, over a period of about a month, completely and appropriately regenerate that digit tip. And even in humans, there's anecdotally a lot of reports of the very same thing happening. So now the question goes from why can axolotls regenerate and we can't to why can we regenerate this one specific little place on our bodies and nothing else? And so that's the question that we have tried to address. Now, our segue into it actually did have a neuro bias. And what it was, was that in both axolotls and in this uh, mammalian digitive regeneration thing, which actually had not been studied much, we knew that nerve innervation was required. And if you didn't have the nerves there, that actually that regeneration was all messed up and it was very deficient. That led us to look into the literature and it led us to the finding that there was a huge number of papers in various organisms, many mammal papers, mammalian papers, showing that nerve innervation was important for repair of many mammalian tissues. So we thought, what is it that's so magical about the nerve that allows to promote tissue regeneration. And in a couple of other papers we published, I guess in the past four years or so, uh, two different ones in cell stem cell, um, we showed that actually both the Schwann cells that are in your nerves, as well as the mesenchymal cells that are in your nerves actually play key roles in digitip regeneration. Then that led us to saying, well, that's fantastic to know that, but what is happening during regeneration, which is what led us to the blastema paper that you were just alluding to. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you led with the the cell stem cell, which was the run up to this, because yeah, that was a developmental paper. And as you said, it, it's your kind of reignited that or you found that the tools were there and you could look at the interface of development and regeneration again. Um, and followed that, but it wasn't just that dev cell paper. You had a couple before there. And as you said, it was the mesenchymal cells that had a key role there, these mesenchymal precursors. Um, but mesenchymal, when I hear mesenchymal anything, mesenchymal stem cells, they've kind of, they're polarizing, let's say, because they've been misappropriated yeah. by a lot of these charlatans out there in the pop-up clinics yeah. and stem cell clinics with the autologous, this and that, injecting them everywhere to cure everything. Um, but you, I mean, I would argue that's a totally unfair uh, stigma that's been attached there. And your work has really elevated the biology of these cells uh, in the context of injury and realized that not only is there like diversity, um, there's a lot of cells in there that contribute to this process, a lot of mesenchymal um, uh, components. Uh, and it got me thinking like, Mesenchymal stem cells are kind of ubiquitous, but they're all unique, right, to their niche. At least that, that would be my hypothesis. Do you think, broadly speaking, mesenchymal potential that you see in the digitip regeneration underlies regenerative processes broadly in other organs? And more and more, you know, it's a tough question to ask, so I'm sorry in advance, but like, there's this idea of angiocrine endothelium, right? That endothelium in the specific organ can contribute to regeneration. But if you take endothelium from like a liver and ask it to do that regenerative role in the lungs, it doesn't do it. You transplant the liver anything in the lung, no sale. So do you think that, that's a, that there's specificity within the organ? If you took mesenchymal cells from the digit tip and put them in some other organ where they might regenerate, would they work? Or are they really unique to each, each system? 
Yeah, it's an excellent uh, question. And I have a couple. I'll just make one quick comment and then I'll try and answer it as best as I can. The first comment is we went out of our way to never call them the Zenchymal stem cells in any of our papers. <laughs> there was a very specific reason for that. We called them mesenchymal precursor cells. Um, and the reason for that is because to me, I use precursor because it's a very vague term. It doesn't mean progenitor, which means you're already lineage biased and you may not keep going. It doesn't mean stem cell. It's in a sense, it's not, I won't call it agnostic, but it's, it's kind of something that says these are cells that we actually don't know enough about yet to really firmly put them into a hierarchy. Hmm. And we don't really know enough about them yet to call them stem cells either. So that's my statement. Um, and also, of course, to distinguish them from all those other crazy studies that have happened. Um, so we went into this uh, set of studies somewhat naively, um, just because there had not been a lot done except during development, during the limb development, people have some beautiful work on the mesenchymal cells that build limbs and things like that. But in the adult, not a lot was known. And that's why people... Some people don't like me to even call them mesenchymal cells. They say call them fibroblasts. Hmm. Well, when you look at the term fibroblast or mesenchymal cell, really in an adult tissue, what you're talking about is a very vague group of cells that build the interstitial tissues that, as you said, reside in every organism, every organ of our bodies. And um, we didn't know what we would find. And in fact, now we have really large single cell um, RNA sequencing data sets on the digit, on the regenerating blastema of the digitif, and on the nerve through development to adulthood. Mm. So very different organs, if you will. And I can tell you they're very distinct from each other. These things that we lump into one big pot and call them mesenchymal cells, they couldn't be more different. But having said that, if you go back to really old papers where people took fibroblasts from the dermis mostly and put them in a dish and made the remarkable findings, this was before anybody called them stem cells, that they could make in a dish cartilage, bone, mm. and adipocytes. There has always been the idea floating around that as a class of cells, at least some of those mesenchymal cells are somewhat... Um, I, I don't really like the word plastic. It's a bit vague, but somewhat plastic capabilities. And I think that those are the cells we're talking about when we're talking about if I can take dermal cells, mesenchymal cells, and transplant them into the regenerating digitip, which was one of the experiments we did. If you put them into a digitip that regenerated, they contributed to making new tissues. Mm -hmm. If you put them into a non-regenerative one that had been cut off too much, they just made like what we call a you know, a fibroblastic cap on the bone that didn't mm. regenerate. So clearly some of those cells are capable of contributing to other tissues. But the question then becomes, can we figure out what those cells are? Is that just a specific subpopulation? Or indeed, is it a, a population property that if we could figure out how the environment gets them to, if you will, go back to a developing state, and then move forward in an appropriate way, wouldn't that be amazing? Mm -hmm. Because again, that goes back to this idea of endogenous repair, because we all know that there are bone fractures, for example, that heal well, and others in other people, maybe even the same bone fracture 
that doesn't heal worth beans, right? And so the question becomes, could we figure out by figuring out what makes these mesenchymal cells go backwards, then use that in an endogenous situation in a real tissue in vivo to have them move forward. Mm. So I don't think I've really answered your question so directly, <laughs> but um, I think those are the things you have to think about when you're transplanting mesenchymal cells from one tissue to another. It's the best answer. It, le it leads to about five other questions in my mind, but we'll have to defer those to Arun for now. Now, Dr. Miller, I'm really glad you referred to these cells as having some plasticity because that's something we've actually talked about a lot on the podcast. You know, not only these mesenchymal cells, but fibroblasts have recently been shown to interconvert uh, to multiple cell types. So there's a lot we still need to learn when it comes to that plasticity. But shifting gears a little bit away from the, the nitty gritty science, we wanted to talk a little bit about your, your lab setup. And you've got a pretty unique lab setup. You actually run your lab jointly with Dr. David Kaplan, who is a very accomplished fellow neurobiologist, who also just so happens to be your husband. And yeah. it's it's a pretty rare setup, I think, but I actually did my first postdoc in the lab of another HHMI-funded husband and wife team, John and Cricket Seidman, in Boston. So as a trainee, I know that the advantage of being in a lab with two PIs that you get two opinions on science, but the disadvantage is, well, you get two opinions on science, right? <laughs> so, so what's it like to co-run a lab with your partner in all things life and science? And how did you make that happen in the first place? So we met, and I think this is part of the secret. David and I met when we were already both sort of established as scientists. Mm. You know what I mean? So it wasn't a situation where we met as grad students and oh, now you got to get two jobs and, you know, who's who's going to sacrifice what for who? This, we were both doing well and we met as real equals. So I think that that was a huge thing. We're very, very different people. So I think that can be an enormous advantage because we actually want to do different things in our joint lab. Um, I'm hyper-focused, right? I like, I love writing papers. I love thinking, analyzing data. I love, you know, and I don't like to do a lot of things at once because then I become very inefficient at doing the things I really want to do. David is the complete opposite. He's like, he's, he's from New York, you know, and he like <laughs> loves to talk to people. And he's like, always like, you know, uh, doing 50 things at a time and, and, uh, and so in a sense, we end up divvying things up like that to some degree, yeah. right? So from an operational standpoint, it's perfect. Um, from, and I think actually from a creative standpoint, it's perfect too, because I think our brains, as probably evidenced by this difference in our personalities, really function differently. I mean, I'll think I've thought of everything about something and then I'll be discussing it with him and he'll say, oh, but had you thought about these other A, B, and C things, and I hadn't at all. So if you're completely, you know, secure in your own ego and your own competence, that's incredibly exciting to have someone say that to you. The third thing is, I don't know what it was like in your PhD lab, but people, even if they're not formally co-supervised, um, they end up being co-supervised scientifically, but they segregate according to personality. So you know what? I hate talking about money. I hate thinking about money. You know, it just stresses me out to no end. David has no problem with it. So people in the lab want to go and talk about the $50,000 experiment they want to do. <laughs> they go and talk to David, not to me. 
people, someone's having a heartbreak, you know, and, and uh, they don't know how to deal with it and they need some time off and they, and if, especially if it's a, a woman, she'll frequently come to me and not to Dave because she's not, you know, she doesn't feel comfortable talking to David. So I think those it's in our case, and this is just happenstance almost, we complement each other much more than we compete with each other on any of these fronts. So, um, so that's why it's been, it's been a fantastic marriage. And, you know, you can think of other scientists who aren't actually physically married, but happen to be scientifically married. And if you look at those relationships, it's usually two somewhat distinct personalities with very different uh, perspectives that are trust each other completely. That really works out. I would say you really got to thread the needle. One in a million. I couldn't imagine running anything with my wife, much less a lab. I mean, we can barely run my family. So uh, that's <laughs> kudos to you. Um, another achievement in your, another feather in your cap, besides being able to be functional with your husband alongside, is your repertoire, in your repertoire, it's the twice being named International Research Scholar of the Howard Hughes Med Medical Institute. So, you know, Howard Hughes famously is like this kind of blue sky, big idea, unrestricted. How is that a good fit for your research focus? Is there any kind of like expectation for clinical translation attached to that? Or does it really just enable you to not, you know, care? I mean, maybe you do care about translation. Of course, we all want our work to be used in people. Um, but I mean, does it, does it change? Has it unleashed you, so to speak? Yeah, that was, you know what? the HHMI and, and just becoming more senior in general has allowed me to have the confidence to basically just ask whatever seems like the biggest question. Mm. And I, you know, it's one of the key things I try to teach the people in my lab, that it's just as much work to ask a small question as to ask a big question. Mm. And frequently it is, right? You think, oh, I'm just going to do this little set of experiments and get a small paper over here. And then two years later, right, you're still cleaning up that little set of experiments. So if you're going to put that much effort into it, why not do something um, really interesting? The other thing that I've always been driven by is I actually am not a very competitive person in science. I don't like being in super crowded fields. Uh, hence the digit tip regeneration. That's a perfect example of that. Mm -hmm. um, I like to be doing things that are kind of our own, because I think once you have 50 people working on something, they're going to figure it out and you don't have to be there. Um, and once you recognize that in yourself and you realize that you're going to continue to get funding from somebody for kind of wild ideas then why wouldn't you go for the wild ideas, right? Why wouldn't? And we always, I know some people have different names for this, the Friday afternoon experiments, right? Every Friday afternoon, they make sure that they've got some absolutely wild and crazy experiments going on, some of which will never work out, but some of which will, right? And so we always have those kinds of experiments ongoing. And I've been, the other, the, the way I facilitate that is they're not all my ideas, of course, some of them are David's ideas, but some of them are my trainees' ideas. And I think the other reason that we can make space for that kind of off-the-wall creative endeavor is because I view my trainees as my peers 
that are just in a more junior stage. So if a trainee comes to me, a postdoc in particular, and they've got some absolutely wild idea, I won't just say, well, our grant says we have to do this, so let's just do it. I'll say, okay, let's look at the old literature. Let's talk about this. Could we truly make a unique contribution by studying that question in a new or different way? And so I would say that, of course, the HHMI and um, and my own funding body here in Canada, the CIHR, has always funded me to do those kinds of experiments and really just experience knowing that I can do that stuff and still be funded and still be productive. Now, translation is a different question. And I just feel like fundamentally that um, what I'm really good at is more basic creative science, but I have a moral responsibility to our society because I'm being funded by our society to actually turn that back. So if I find something in my laboratory that can be used for translation, then I think I need to facilitate the effort to do that. Now, I frequently will only go to a certain point in my own lab with that because I know what we're good at and what we're not good at. But one of the things I've built my career on as well is, is assembling teams of people who can do things I can't do, some of my human collaborators, and helping to get that work funded so that if I can't take it forward to humans, someone else will be able to. Yeah, so say what you will about you know academic science, but something that you alluded to freedom, academic freedom is still, I think, a huge, huge draw for academic research, right? And I, it's refreshing to hear that, you know, your lab is very much a place where ideas can come from anywhere. So that's really cool to hear. So we're reaching the end of our interview, Dr. Miller. And before we let you go, we actually found a really fun factoid that we wanted you to elaborate on. We actually found that there's a new elementary school in Calgary that's going to be oh. named the Dr. Frieda Miller School. So you know you've made it as an educator when you start getting schools named after you, right? <laughs> and you've lived in Calgary too, so that must be a really special honor. So how did that come about? And any plans on doing some extra teaching over there maybe? Yeah, I honestly, <laughs> when, that, when I heard about that last fall, I Honestly, I literally just about fell off my chair. <laughs> I was, I started crying and laughing and, and whatever other response you can imagine. Um, a, a little background. I, um, I was born and raised in Calgary, as were my parents. Um, and my grandfather actually homesteaded there um, in Alberta. And, and uh, I came from a family where no one, my, neither of my parents finished high school. No one had gone to university. I really grew up on the wrong side of the tracks, very much so. Um, super working class. And, you know, it was the public school board in Calgary that first introduced me to what science even was. It was a number of really key teachers when I was in high school who told me I, I hated biology, I have to tell you. <laughs> I hated memorizing things. I loved physics and chemistry and math. And they convinced me that, you know, actually you could marry biology with these other types of science and go on and actually go to university. So I owed a huge debt to the Calgary Public School Board. Um, 
And several years ago, I won an award because I also did my PhD in Calgary. And I won an alumni award from the medical school there, you know, for their top alumnus over X number of years. And I came back and that's when the school board got wind of me because they saw the press coverage. And this story of at a time, I don't know what it's like where you live, but even here in Canada and certain provinces, the publicly funded school boards are under, you know, under threat. I would put it that way. You know, taxes are being cut. And 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 so you're I'm not sure that the same child who Hmm. I was that many years ago would get the same education. Now, I would hope so, but I don't know that. So in a sense, this success story of the Calgary Public School Board taking a kid from, I mean, they don't advertise it this way, but my interpretation is taking a kid with this, you know, you know, very different kind of a background and allowing them to really reach their full potential is part of the reason I was, that school was named for me. And, and I tell you, I, I've decided that it's going to be a, a springboard for me to tell as many people as who will listen that story that we need to fund education and we need to make sure every child, regardless of who they are, where they come from, can get an excellent education because you never know where the next Albert Einstein is going to come from. And so it was an honor on many, many levels for me to have that school named after me. You know, you're not the only one uh, to talk about their inspiration coming from public school. Uh, I think Joseph Penninger talked about it. I know Darcy Wagner talked about it. These are past guests. And I think that's really so true about what you're saying. And unfortunate is that you see the sterling CVs of these people and they start it, you know, the, the best or maybe not. You know, Darcy Wagner, she started uh, as a bulldog at Gonzaga, but like it's still a, a, an amazing school. It's not all Harvard and whatnot, but no one talks about, you know, the little elementary school where it seems to me I've learned now that that a lot of scientists get their real inspiration. So it's nice to see you're circling that back uh, on on, you know, where it all started for you. Um, and it's a good note, a good segue to just the final installment, some more science peripheral question. This is uh, just the first one, Arun will end it, uh, is what non-science book are you reading right now or have read that is awesome and you would recommend to the listeners? So I, I, um, I read voraciously. And um, if you ask me about books, it's hard because I, I enjoy a lot of what I read. I will say that... Um, of a more serious books. I um, love Hilary Mantel's books. I don't know if you know them, Wolf Hall. She did a trilogy. She won the Booker for them a couple of years ago. Um, but the one that I love Charles Dickens, for example, as a, a sort of classical writer. But what I read a lot of is science fiction. <laughs> and, uh, and you know what? Um, if I was going to say to somebody who maybe isn't as familiar with science fiction, um, and they just wanted to find out, did they really like it or not? I mean, the classic thing people would steer you to would be Dune or something, you know. Mm. But I would steer you to the Ian M. Banks books, which are, there's a whole series of books. They're called the culture books. Um, Ian Banks, as Ian Banks wrote very serious books. And as Ian M. Banks wrote these fantastic science fiction novels. Mm. And I would steer people to that. Um, so... 
I could go on and on, but I won't. <laughs> well, that's a good tip because I've read pretty much all there is. I've run out of sci-fi and I've not read a single one of those. So I'm getting into that. All right. Uh, wow. This is a great episode for me. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm the same way. I'm a big sci-fi aficionado and I've not heard of Ian Banks. So I'm going to have to check that out. So finally, <laughs> wrapping things up, what was your greatest science blunder that you're willing to share with our listeners? So, you know, I thought about science blunders and I'm going to turn that around a bit and tell you about something that at first was a big, huge disappointment and then actually turned out to be a discovery. So, so what one in early in my career, I did a lot of work on trophic factors. I think that was introduced at the very beginning. And I worked on the one neurotrophic factor, nerve growth factor, for which Rita Levi Montalcini won the Nobel Prize decades and decades ago. And I was working on how nerve growth factor promotes the survival of neurons. So this is really a long time ago. And I was looking at one of the receptors that we knew about at the time for nerve growth factor called now called the P75 neurotropin receptor. And we were doing things like expressing parts of it and, you know, um, trying to do domain analysis in transgenic mice and things. And the answer we kept getting from all of our experiments was that it was killing neurons <laughs> and not promoting their survival. And honestly, it was like, it was such a radical thing. And I thought, wow, I must be technically screwing up somehow, or this damn transgenic mice are just a mess or whatever. And it turns out that instead of just giving it up and walking, which would have been one alternative, we kind of just sat there and thought and turned it around and thought, maybe we're looking at it all wrong. And this is telling us something completely unexpected. And in fact, that led to one of what I would argue is one of my first big breakthroughs, that this particular receptor is a member of the FAST receptor family and actually plays an important endogenous role during the period of naturally occurring cell death as the nervous system wires itself up. So it was indeed a pro-death receptor. Hmm. So blunder, yes, I guess so. But, you know, these things are always in the eye of the beholder. And so I think sometimes when we look at things and say they're blunders or mistakes or that can't be right, then maybe we just have to be less ego involved and take the step back and say, maybe instead of it being wrong, it's just something that I need to look at more closely. Yeah, I pray for blunders like that. I think we all do, but maybe they happen and we just don't have, you know, the courage or wherewithal to look at it twice and say, well, no, it's not what I was expecting, but maybe there's something there. I think we all just say, oh, I'll do it again and do it again and do it again until it comes up the way we expect. And that, I think, speaks to your courage. It speaks to your success. It's probably what underlies the big result is going against the grain. And uh, it seems to have worked out well for you. So I'm praying for blunders like that. I'll never be able to look at an apoptotic cell again without thinking that I may be letting something slip. So uh, thanks for that. And uh, thanks for joining us. This has been a really fun chat and uh, we hope to have you again uh, sometime soon. Dr. Miller, thanks. Well, thanks to both of you. It was really fun for me too. Bye-bye. All right, guys, that brings us to the end of this episode. A great one. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all of the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast or by email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. 
Thanks, you guys, for listening in to this episode. We'll see you in a couple weeks with something fresh. 